0: Hello everyone, Uh, my name is Andrea Tanco. I am the Strategic Advisor to MPI's President and an Associate Policy Analyst at MPI's Latin America Initiative. I am extremely pleased to welcome you to the webinar, Seeking Safety, Regional Protection Options for Central Americans. Before we get started, let me go over some housekeeping notes. Spanish and English interpretation are available in your meeting controls Asi que si desea escuchar este webinar en espanol, puede hacer clic en el globo que dice Interpretación en la parte inferior de su pantalla. If you have any technical problems, please email us at events at migrationpolicy.org. Again, that email is events at migrationpolicy.org. We will have a QA at the end of the presentation. This will not be a voice QA, however, so please do send your questions by typing into the QA box. Or email us at events at migrationpolicy.org. Today's webinar highlights some findings from the report my colleague Susan Fratsky and I co-authored, and that is now available in our website. The report is titled Humanitarian Pathways for Central Americans: Assessing Opportunities for the Future. And there is a Spanish version available. This is titled Dias Humanitarias para Personas Centroamericanas Evaluando Oportunidades. El today's timely discussion and the launch of this report is happening as policymakers, government officials, and experts in the field convene in Ottawa for a signature event on the Comprehensive Regional Protection and Solutions Framework known as MIRS, signaling the importance of today's topic of discussion in the region. As we highlight in our report, since 2014, hundreds of thousands of Central Americans, including families, children, and adults, mainly from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, have fled their countries due to a set of intertwined factors, but mainly due to violence, persecution, food insecurity, among others. The grand majority have taken dangerous journey by land to seek protection in neighboring Mexico and the United States through increasingly strained national asylum systems. In addition to surpassing the processing and management capacity of governments, many asylum seekers have been left adrift while they await the resolution of their cases. In this context, policymakers in the United States and Canada have begun to reconsider the role that refugee resettlement and other protection pathways could play in addressing the humanitarian needs that exist in the region. However, as our report highlights, while there is a case for further growing resettlement and other humanitarian pathways, these are likely to remain a targeted tool most suited to providing protection for the most vulnerable individuals. Today, the larger share of resettlement from the region has occurred through what we call in-country processing mechanisms as the Central American Minors Program and the Protection Transfer Arrangement known as PTA. These mechanisms have been key for providing protection closer to home for Central Americans at risk. Yet, until today, the scale of these programs has remained limited for several reasons, including limited quotas for the region and due to a series of administrative, operational, bureaucratic and legal challenges, both on the ground and in the resettlement countries. Our panelists today will talk about the challenges and opportunities for expanding refugee resettlement and other protection pathways in the region. With that overview, I would love to now turn to Noah Bullock. Noah is the executive director of Cristo Sal, a human rights organization providing assistance to victims of human rights violations in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Noah, welcome. Um, Could you please provide us some insights into the current context in the region and, given your experience, tell us more about the efficacy and challenges for in-country processing?
1: Yeah, good morning, Andrea. Thanks so much for having me. I apologize. I I can't turn my camera on because we're in the middle of a tropical storm here in Central America, and it's causing terrible traffic in San Salvador. Uh, But as soon as I can, I'll turn it on. Um, But... Just to kind of give a little bit of context, I think Crystal Sal, we have been um, operating a program in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador to provide assistance to internally displaced people. And we've been focused on profiles of people who have been displaced by violence and insecurity, but also disasters uh, in the last year. So we've been able to uh, identify and assist over 1,500 internally displaced people in Honduras. Uh, and El Salvador, and to the date, about 1,200 people in Guatemala, uh, and that sample of people who we've been able to document and, and provide assistance to demonstrate uh, that a lot stayed the same, but there are some changes in the patterns of humanitarian need and drivers in displacement. Uh, the constant is that gangs continue to be a significant factor in driving uh, displacement in Honduras. Uh, El Salvador and to a lesser degree in Guatemala, uh, even though homicide rates have dropped uh, the presence of organized criminal groups and their capacity to operate and control territory uh, continues to drive uh, displacement in Guatemala we've observed that. Uh, organized criminal groups, narco trafficking groups, uh, a more diverse <laughs> uh, kind of set of criminal actors are involved in driving displacement. Uh, but the other big factor that we've seen, especially in Honduras and Guatemala, in the last year is are the effects of the tropical Ordon, or the Class Four hurricanes uh, Iota and uh, Ieta. Those uh, so many things happen in the world that sometimes we forget that. These two back-to-back massive hurricanes destroyed uh, a large portion of Honduras uh, and had a, a terrible effect uh, in the northern, especially northeastern part of Guatemala. Uh, and those, are, those internal displacements by disasters, we've noticed that they have different kind of um, uh, sequences, like different um, follow-up effects. So, for example, in Guatemala, uh, in the areas that were affected by the storms are areas that already have sort of structural issues going on around uh, land rights, uh, conflict between indigenous uh, groups uh, and mega projects, disputes like that. So people who were displaced by the storms often uh, move from one part of the country or one piece of land to another uh, and find themselves in a new conflict and sort of around ancestral rights uh, and, and sort of extractive rights. So the displacement solutions become more complicated uh, because the populations become sort of um, interconnected with uh, territorial conflicts and, and, and things of that nature. Um, so those are some of the, the patterns that we see. I, I think that uh, we need to be attentive to disaster as a, a driver of displacement and, and humanitarian need. Um, and be attuned to the complexities of displacement and humanitarian need that emerge out of those new forms. In El Salvador, uh, it's important to mention as well uh, that their humanitarian need is now uh, emerging out of political uh, shifts in the region, especially in Guatemala and El Salvador, where we have a sort of resurgent authoritarianism. Uh, Specifically, El Salvador right now, uh, in the last seven months, the government has been implementing kind of a, like a martial law uh, in which 32,000 people have been d- detained uh, and due process rights have been suspended. And uh, so this is one of the 32,000 people have been arbitrarily detained by soldiers and police in the country. And this becomes a driver of displacement. Uh, we haven't been able to systematically document to give uh, a sense of how, how many people are now fleeing uh, captures of government forces but it's become a new phenomenon. And the authoritarianism itself, especially in El Salvador and Guatemala, becomes a, a source of more individual, humanitarian need of people who are, who are fleeing the country because of criminalization or other forms of political persecution. Um, and so that becomes a new, uh, more difficult uh, type of need to meet, especially when we're thinking about the PTA program, in country processing programs uh, who are sort of set up in countries uh, at the invitation of governments, uh, host governments. And so when there are people fleeing persecution by those governments, those cases become very uncomfortable to deal with in the context of a PTA program. We see this, for example, in Guatemala, uh, in the case of the uh, former FESI, the uh, attorney general, Uh, people fleeing from the uh, former uh, prosecutors fleeing criminalization in Guatemala, uh, that the PTA program has limited uh, options for them. Uh, And also that when people are fleeing political persecution, they need to leave the country very quickly. Uh, So we've seen cases where people have fled Guatemala, uh, come to El Salvador, uh, and needed to be able to apply to PTA from El Salvador even being a citizen of a different country. And so those, they, they, they put new stress on these in-country processing systems, uh, which in their current form, I think you mentioned this at the beginning, are still very, very slow, uh, have very strict eligibility criteria, uh, and are not quick enough to be able to get people to sort of third countries where they could uh, be in safety and then continue through the processing. So I think that uh, those are some of the structural challenges since the program was set up. Um, But in the light of kind of these new cases of people who are fleeing uh, political persecution, uh, the program becomes more complicated, especially because it depends on the goodwill of the host country. Uh, So the combination of these sort of people fleeing criminalization uh, becomes an issue of, of sort of debate about whether they have legitimate uh, asylum claims when they're being persecuted by the countries. So um, I, I, I say that, but I also want to end on a more positive note. I think, and I've always thought this, that the in-country processing is an important mechanism. It's never a substitute for the traditional mechanism of uh, seeking protection at a border, uh, but I think that it needs to continue to grow and expand I think we just need to be conscious of the limitations when we are in, uh, and in context of increasingly authoritarian governance, uh, the PTA programs operate uh, at the behest at the welcome of authoritarian governments, uh, but they need to continue to expand. And I think the opportunity is to continue to grow the network of third country uh, uh, that can support, and being able to do sort of humanitarian extractions quickly and be able to do the processing outside of the countries of origin, rather than having people wait for a year or more in their country of origin while their asylum claims are processed. So that's all I have for now. I look forward to the question and answer. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Noan, for making the effort to join us uh, on your car in the middle of a storm. It just shows how pressing this discussion really is. Um, And with that, I would like to now turn to my colleague and mastermind behind this report susan fratsky who um, has been on leave in the last couple of months but it's an honor to have her back for this susan is a senior policy analyst uh, with mpi's international program and susan if i may now turn to you could you please expand um, a little bit further on what are the challenges and opportunities for expanding refugee resettlement in the region both to the us and canada specifically and Can you tell us a little bit more about the role to play for other mechanisms such as complementary pathways or private sponsorship models?
2: Thanks so much Andrea and thanks for gathering us all here, and I also just wanted to say thank you um, also for your excellent work on the report, it was very much a, a joint effort and a, a pleasure to work together on it. Uh, so as Andrea said um, what we're sharing today, of course, is the findings of the report, and so I would of course refer everyone um, to, to the report itself for more detail on our discussion, um, but. It's important, I think, to start with, with a bit of the, the context around these issues, as you know, Noah has already shared. Um, the challenges in Mexico and at the US southern border over the last several years have, of course, raised a lot of questions about how protection mechanisms in the region and, of course, across the region um, through into um, uh, North America are working, and whether there isn't a better way to provide access to protection for people who are at risk of harm, or more specifically, at risk of persecution. And in particular, a way that doesn't require vulnerable individuals to undertake the risky journeys that Andrea mentioned, uh, and provides uh, swifter access to protection for those who are at risk of persecution. And of course, MPI has been looking into this for the last several years. And in particular here, um, we're looking at the, the role of resettlement. Uh, of course, also from the point of view of political leaders, um, in addition to ensuring and, and looking for ways that to um, increase access to protection, better pathways to protection, uh, there's an interest in finding ways to reduce the sense of, of chaos and sense that um, migration situation um, within the region, or particularly the U.S. southern border, as we're you're sitting here from the the U.S. talking about these issues, that this situation is under control, um, is out of control. Resettlement, if within, within this context, really seems like an appealing option because it provides a, a more managed, orderly pathway to protection. Um, beyond the the asylum system for those at need. But resettlement has typically played a limited role in the region, as Andrea shared, um, particularly when compared with uh, asylum. So as the conversation on protection in the region evolves, it makes sense um, to take a pause and and ask really, what role should resettlement play as a protection strategy um, within the wider context of measures that, um, that we're talking about going forward? does resettlement make sense to deploy more widely as a protection tool? And our conclusion in the report was um, very much yes, that there is a role for protection to play. As NOAA outlined, there are various forms of violence, uh, corruption, and discrimination in the region that really amount to persecution and create a clear need for better protection mechanisms. And moreover, as investments to protect people in their countries have expanded, as NOAA of course um, spoke to and and is deeply uh, involved in in helping to build that infrastructure, uh, it's not always possible to provide um, really secure protection within someone's country of origin. Um, Moreover, asylum systems in the region are overstretched, which means there's a a need for responsibility sharing tools and resettlement um, can play an important role as a responsibility sharing tool um, to reduce the pressure on countries like Mexico. Uh, And of course, some of the violence in the region is transnational and can reach into neighboring countries. and, And with that in mind, there's also a role for resettlement to play in taking people out of situations, even in neighboring countries where they might still be at risk of harm. But if resettlement is going to play an expanded role as a protection tool, um, it's also important to ask whether or not the capacity and ability exists for it to really grow into that role. And we uh, delved into that in in a bit more depth in the report, uh, finding that there were three specific things that um, really need to happen in order for resettlement to really um, grow into a, a larger role as a protection tool. First there needs to be um, continued political will to expand resettlement quotas and then resources need to follow those expanded quotas to ensure that there's the staffing and funding um, there to support uh, resettlement activities on the ground. Resettlement is typically driven by a quota that's set by the resettlement country. So they determine how many places they will make available, and then that quota determines how much funding is um, given to uh, to identifying refugee cases um, and processing them and referring them to the resettlement country. Um, Typically, resettlement has, from this region has been a lower priority relative to other um, crises in the last few years, like uh, the Syrian crisis, of course, and more recently, um, Afghanistan and now Ukraine. Um, there are signs that that's um, changing. And, of course, the, the U.S. for fiscal year 2022 actually um, engaged in a significant increase, actually tripling the resettlement quota from um, the Latin America region over the preceding year. But uh, in order for that quota to actually um, be fulfilled, it's important for there to be sufficient staffing on the ground, particularly um, from UNHCR offices that actually identify and, and uh, usually play a role in preparing and referring cases um, to the US and other resettlement countries um, for that, uh, those activities to actually happen in practice. Second, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, as Noah also mentioned, to address some of the unique operational challenges that exist for resettlement in the region. The way in which resettlement is actually being used in Central America is quite different than the way it's typically used elsewhere. Normally, um, resettlement is a tool that's most often deployed for refugees who have already left their country of origin. They've sought safety usually in a neighboring country. Uh, The UN High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, is involved in uh, helping to support those individuals in that neighboring country and then through that work is able to identify people who are in need of resettlement and refer them on to two third countries for resettlement. Um, in the region, as Andrea mentioned, a lot of what's um, happening is actually in-country processing, so where people are... Uh, in their home countries are identified at risk, and then while still there are referred on for resettlement. And this creates a number of um, specific challenges. First of all, because UNHCR doesn't have that infrastructure that's already built up and that knowledge of the refugee population, um, it's more complex to actually identify people who are in need. And UNHCR has been working quite closely with an NGO network on the ground to identify those who might be in need and might be um, good candidates for resettlement. Um, so for resettlement, settlements to continue to grow, it will be important to uh, continue to grow that NGO network uh, and invest in their capacity to actually identify Um, Cases that might be both at risk and might uh, meet the eligibility criteria for these programs, which as Noah said, can be quite strict. Um, Second, and Noah mentioned this as well, uh, there are particular safety and security concerns that in-country processing raises because people have to often wait in their country of origin for resettlement and because processing times can be quite lengthy, um, up to 18 or 24 months for the U.S., for example, uh, they can actually actually face a lot of security risks um, while waiting for resettlement to happen. Um, So to address those, uh, it's important to both build the capacity of local NGOs to provide safe houses and and, uh, protection mechanisms for people in their country while they're waiting, as well as um, support the the capacity and reach of a program that Noah mentioned, the protection transfer arrangement, which allows people to move to Costa Rica or third countries while their cases are being processed. Uh, And finally, also, um, it's important to look at ways to speed up processing times. Um, The U.S., for example, has been uh, experimenting with speeding up processing times for the Afghan caseload. Um, in particular over the last few months and there may be lessons there that can be actually applied to speeding up processing times elsewhere. Uh, The final issue that we identified in the report um, for attention is finding ways to address some of the legal barriers that prevent people from qualifying for these programs. Um, while there are plenty of people who are in need who might benefit from uh, from resettlement, whether in country or third country processing, uh, it's not always possible for them to benefit from those programs, um, particularly in the US context, because of uh, barriers that prevent individuals who, for example, have had to pay extortion fees or bribes from qualifying for asylum. And unfortunately, the nature of the violence that people are fleeing in Central America means that in many cases, people have actually had to do this as a matter of survival. Um, so both for the resettlement uh, population as well as, of course, the larger asylum population, um, expanding access to protection uh, would benefit from looking at uh, how these bars affect individuals in practice and whether or not there are ways to, um, to lift or to, to lighten them and to allow more individuals to benefit from, uh, from resettlement and other protection pathways. Uh, As Andrea mentioned, of course, resettlement isn't the only tool that we looked at, nor is it the only um, tool for accessing protection outside of asylum that could um, really be deployed and expanded in the region. There's recently been a push internationally to consider whether or not there are other types of pathways that could be open to people who are at risk of persecution, uh, including family reunification. So ways for um, people who are at risk of of harm and have family in a third country to to use those connections to actually move uh, and benefit from protection in that third country. And SA will speak uh, in more depth about how this has been used already in, in Central America Um, There's also a number of of programs that have grown worldwide um, that fall within the category of private sponsorship. So these are programs where NGOs or groups of individuals can actually come together and say, uh, I know of a a person in um, El Salvador and Honduras who needs protection, I'm willing to support that person if I would be able to bring them to to the US or to Canada. Uh, And those programs can play an important role for individuals who might not necessarily uh, be within a priority category um, for resettlement, but have a network of support and and individuals who are willing to receive them and and help them once they arrive. Um, Canada has a well-established private sponsorship program that hasn't really been deployed in Central America to date. And the US is just in the process of of launching one that could also um, be. a a tool that could be used to expand protection in the region Uh, finally there's an ongoing conversation as well about the role that labor pathways specifically for refugees could play in the region Um, there's of course a larger conversation about labor pathways as a migration channel more broadly but um, refugees and those who are at risk of persecution face a lot of barriers to accessing those Uh, and the economic mobility pathways program in Canada uh, that was launched a few years ago, has been working to remove some of those barriers and could also play a a role in providing another protection pathway. Um, Expanding these complementary pathways requires a lot of the same investments as exist for uh, the refugee resettlement program. Some of the same bars apply. And also, um, there's quite a a need for many of the programs to rely on NGO capacity to actually identify and refer people who could benefit from those programs. So investments in NGO capacity, expanding information uh, and awareness of these programs among NGOs who could work to identify people is uh, another really important investment. And uh, just to finally, one concluding point before I hand it back to Andrea, as Andrea mentioned, I think one of the, the main things that we observed in the report is that while resettlement and complementary pathways have an important role to play, they can't, um, they, they won't be the only protection tool uh, in the toolkits um, to meet the needs within this region. Uh, for one reason, uh, you know, as Noah mentioned, a lot of the caseloads are very complex and might not neatly meet the definition of refugee set out in the convention and in U.S. and Canadian law. Um, so there's a need to really look at a lot of different mechanisms um, that, can, that can support um, the, and meet the, the protection needs with responsible being an important one, but only one among many. Thanks, Andrea.
0: Thank you so much, Susan, for that insightful overview. As I told uh, everyone in the audience, uh, Susan is really the mastermind and the expert on protection here at MPI, and I'm so glad that I got to publish this report with her. I would like now to turn to my dear colleague Essay Workey. She is the director of MPI's Human Services Initiative. And Essay, you have followed very closely and written extensively about both iterations of the Central American Minors Program (CAM). Could you please give us a brief overview on the role CAM has played in the region and assess why is it likely to also remain limited in scope vis-à-vis the needs that we? that we face today in Northern Central America?
3: Yeah, I'd be glad to Andrea. And in my remarks, you'll hear some of the same themes that Noah and Susan highlighted. Clearly migration is complex and dynamic and there isn't a one solution fits all approach that we can take. The Central American Minors Program, or CAM, as Andrea said, is one example of family reunification, and if we look at it as a pilot, there's a lot of learning that we can draw from it. So that's the spirit in which I bring this program to this gathering. In the next slide you'll see a brief outline of some of the uh, key points that I'll share. I'll provide a brief overview of the program in terms of eligibility and so forth, talk about some of the challenges with scaling, and then um, identify opportunities, challenges, and recommendations in a few other areas, namely speed, safety, and services. In terms of eligibility in order to participate in the CAM program, there has to be a parent in the United States. It can be a biological adoptive step parent, and now more recently under the Biden administration, even a legal guardian can qualify. And they have to meet certain age and immigration status uh, requirements as you see on the slide. Then in the um, Central American countries, there has to be a qualifying child And there are age limits and other criteria that I won't go into that much detail in the interest of time. The key is a qualifying parent in the U.S., a qualifying child in-country. And then there may be other individuals accompanying adults, derivatives of the qualifying child that may be part of the case and may also be able to uh, come to the U.S. A key point here is that as part of the Biden administration's effort to expand the CAM program, in addition to adding legal guardians, they also now allow individuals with pending asylum cases to be qualifying parents. So that opens up the pool. In this slide, you'll see the overall process. There are lots and lots of steps. Um, Overall, it takes about um, two years for a child to actually come to the U.S. from when the parent starts. Um, There are a couple of things I wanna note here. Uh, In the U.S., the qualifying parent begins the process by working with a resettlement agency in order to submit an affidavit of relationship to the State Department. More recently, there is a new opportunity to work with other partners, but I'll touch on that later. Just that part of the affidavit of relationship um, has taken a a year or more. Once the State Department refers the case to in-country processing through the Resettlement Support Center, the International Organization of Migration, then some biometrics, DNA, and so forth are taken to further prove the identity of the relationship. And then a key part is the in-person interview with USCIS. After the interview is where the decision is made if a child and uh, the derivatives or accompanying uh, individuals are considered a refugee or a parolee. That's a very important distinction because it indicates what services are available in the US and also some of the costs that must be paid in order for travel to be arranged. And we'll touch on that a little bit more later. There are a few other steps, including a medical clearance um, before coming to the US. So keeping that process in mind, since the program began in 2014 and there was an interruption around 2017 and then restart um, to now, there have been um, several thousand people, over 4,000 people, who benefited for the CAM program. So particularly for those families, it has been a very successful program. But 4,000 is is not a lot when you think about the scale of uh, children crossing the southern border to request asylum. And that's what the CAM program was designed to ease, rather than having children travel that dangerous journey, uh, especially unaccompanied, to provide a safe, humanitarian, and orderly um, alternative that could benefit the children as well as the U.S. immigration system. And in last fiscal year, we had over 122,000 children come unaccompanied to the US. This year, we're anticipating over 149,000. So the numbers, as you can see, clearly um, pale in comparison to the numbers we're seeing at the border. So one of the challenges, as Noah and Susan mentioned um, about in-country processing is the speed. In my way of thinking of it, it is an attempt to combine refugee resettlement protection and uh, requests request for parole in that uh, the person is in the country trying to get protection, but there is no real opportunity for safety. So some of the challenges we saw, as I noted, is the length of time it takes for the application assistance, over 400 days, and the length of time it takes for case processing over a year. Um, the opportunities ahead of us are that the State Department has opened up who can help qualifying parents with the application process. It goes now beyond resettlement agencies and hopefully that will alleviate the bottleneck there. Also, um, the RSC or International Organization Migration, uh, the contract there has been renewed so there's opportunity for Um, more case processing in country. There was a brief respite around uh, the last fall. We are recommending in a report that came out last December that um, the federal partners examine the program more closely and identify any additional bottlenecks and work to remedy those. Another strategy is to localize appointments so that families don't have to travel from rural areas into the capital multiple times in order to complete the process that I shared earlier. And then finally to reduce or minimize fees, raising money to pay for fees can also uh, lead to delays. In the next slide, we'll talk about safety as both a challenge and opportunity. Uh, We've said again many times through many speakers today that the in-country processing does not lend itself to the full scale of protection that's needed. Um, There were efforts to use shelters and other means, especially for children, uh, but that hasn't been as effective as it needs to be. And I already mentioned the trips to the capital. The CAM program does have opportunities built into it to expedite case processing and to assess what is in the best interest of children, Uh, but that's not done for every child. And in fact, there's not a lot of information available as to the guidelines around that. And so having more information available to the public would be helpful. We also propose in our report that uh, the federal partners and their implementing partners in country conduct safety screenings for every child to figure out when a case needs to be expedited. Um, and then to strengthen the shelter capacity so it's a viable option for children who are remaining in country while awaiting their case processing. And then finally, as mentioned with the PTA, to explore uh, bilateral or multilateral agreements so that children in uh, imminent risk can be moved to other countries while awaiting their case processing. I'll close up with a brief discussion on services available to children who come to the US through the CAM program. If they receive refugee status, as I noted before, they uh, are eligible for reception and placement um, services. They're eligible for longer term integration services, including mainstream programs around healthcare, food assistance, uh, housing, and so forth. If they don't qualify for refugee status and they get the parole designation, they are eligible for very limited benefits and services which make their transition to the US quite challenging. If a child comes to the US on their own, they would be eligible for something called post release services, which in essence is case management to help them adjust to life in the US. Children who come through CAM as parolees are not even eligible for that. So they're kind of caught in this no man's land around benefits and services. I believe Susan mentioned earlier, learning uh, from the Afghan evacuation experience. And that is something that I wanna emphasize as well. Both the Afghan and Ukrainian parolees are now eligible for benefits and services through the Federal Office of Refugee Resettlement. Perhaps something similar could be structured for parolees who come through the CAM program. In terms of recommendations, uh, we encourage the federal partners to look at their legal authorities to fund services for parolees through CAM and also to explain what few benefits and services are available because navigating access to them is quite challenging, especially for individuals who are new to the country and may not speak uh, English as fluently. Well. So I'll close there. And if there are any questions or other discussion points, I'd be happy to entertain them.
0: Andrea? Thank you so much, Essay. And thank you all for your presentations. I believe we are now ready to open the floor for Q&A. Uh, for our audience, this is ple- this is a reminder to please type any questions into the Q&A or chat box or email us at events at migrationpolicy.org. Or you can also tweet us at migrationpolicy or using the hashtag MPI discuss. So let's um, say as you just finished speaking about hand, there's a number of questions on this topic. Um, some of the participants are wondering what is the current backlog of applications for TAM. And um, the same participant highlights that TAM sounds like a cumbersome program that is of uh, limited use. So does it really make sense um, to scale it, or does something different need to be done?
3: Excellent questions.
0: So data
3: is a bit challenging when it comes to the CAM program because the way it's reported, the way it's collected has changed over the different iterations of the program. Um, What I can say is, uh, initially when the program started, there were roughly 12,000 applicants. And as you can see from the data that I shared, about 4,600 have been approved and have entered the, have been admitted to the United States. Uh, When the Trump administration stopped the program, there were roughly 2,700 cases um, that had been approved conditionally, but weren't actually able to enter the U.S. And so there are numbers concerning that subgroup, and roughly um, 1,300 are still pending. But in terms of a full description of the data set, that's quite challenging to talk about. And the the CAM program um, has some strengths, but it is a little bit cumbersome because I think it tries to bring together different program models as a hybrid into one. Uh, In terms of what needs to change, I think the uh, in-country processing is a a big part of it. If safety cannot be secured in-country, then there have to be other alternatives, especially for uh, young children or children who may be pregnant or have LGBTQ backgrounds and who are at um, greatest risk.
0: Thank you so much, Essay. Um, I would also remind our audience that MPI has published a separate report on the second iteration of the Central American Minors Program. So you can also read more about CAM in our website. Uh, So with that, let me now turn um, to other questions. Some of the participants are wondering what has been the number of people who have benefited of resettlement in in the latest years. So, Susan, I don't know if you have this uh, figure handy. If not, I have the report open. Uh, But if you can also tell us a little bit more about who defines the eligibility criteria of people who um, can be channeled through refugee resettlement. And also there's another question on how does the local network of partners, mainly NGOs is selected and verified uh, to do the referral.
2: Thanks, Andrea. Uh, So I'm happy to to speak to a couple of those questions. So first of all, as we mentioned during the the presentations, resettlement has really been a a tool that's benefited a relatively small number of people, particularly compared to asylum. Between 2010 and 2021, just uh, 1,600, a little over 1,600 people were actually resettled. through UNHCR case submissions. So that's really quite low compared to the number of people who have accessed asylum systems. And of those, most of them have been protection transfer arrangement cases. Uh, so um, uh, cases who have been identified and processed either in country or via the, the PTA in Costa Rica. And a much smaller number, about 200, about 250, have um, been resettled from a third country, usually Mexico. So again, very small tool Um, with regard to the mechanisms for determining who actually is able to benefit from resettlement. um, There's two uh, sort of two, two steps or two criteria to bear in mind. Uh, The first one is that resettlement cases are generally uh, subject to the same eligibility criteria in terms of meeting the definition of a refugee um, as someone who would apply through asylum. So they have to usually meet the same, the same criteria. So someone who is at risk of persecution on account of one of the recognized grounds. So uh, political affiliation, nationality, religion, membership of, of a, a particular ethnic group or um, uh, membership of within a particular social group. So the, the, the very sort of strict, narrow refugee definition. Um, beyond that, uh, usually resettlement countries themselves are responsible for um, determining which uh, which types of cases they'll receive so resettlement of course you know, as we know very um to benefits a very small number of people so resettlement countries set additional criteria in terms of the types of cases they'll receive whether that's women and children women at risk um, lgbtq refugees um, cases that are at risk of political persecution those sorts of things so the resettlement countries that are actually determining which of those cases they're going to prioritize and then uh, passing those requests along to UNHCR, who then identify which cases might actually meet those priority criteria. Um, resettlement countries also uh, apply, uh, in some cases, particular bars, as we mentioned, um, you know, bars that might prevent someone from qualifying for asylum because of um, the particular activities they've engaged in, whether that's you know, having to pay a bribe or um, extortion fees, those types of things that would additionally bar someone from resettlement. Um, so broadly speaking, it's the resettlement countries that are that are setting these criteria and then UNHCR is interpreting them. Um, with regard to the, the question about um, how the NGOs on the ground are actually identified and um, what criteria there uh, are used to determine who UNHCR will work with, I'm actually gonna hand that over to Andrea if you might want to answer that question because you um, were involved in looking into to more of that uh, as part of the report.
0: Yes, of course. Um, so I would just mention briefly that the uh, local networks of panels is mainly a network of local NGOs who need to prove having experience working with generally displaced people, refugees, and migrants or people at risk. Um, there is usually a call of action, uh, and there is a vetting process where the NGOs not only do we need to prove um, the experience working with these populations in need, but that they also need to prove that they have the staffing capacity as well as financial resources to also be able to continue to operate. They are continuously um, reviewed by, by resettlement uh, countries so that they can ensure that they can continue to be part of this uh, local network. However, as we highlight in, a, in the report, Um, Ngo's in the region, just as NGOs elsewhere, face some of the similar challenges. They have limited staffing, they have um, high turnaround of their staff, so it is a little bit challenging to maintain this institutional knowledge on how to do the referrals according to the eligibility criteria. Um, hence, their recommendation that it is critical to strengthen the capacity of, of NGOs, but there is much more information in the report, but this is what I would highlight um, in this webinar. So, um, I think with that, I can also move on to another question, and this is probably best suited for Noah. Uh, so, Noah, one of our participants is kind of highlighting the challenges of families opting to go through the camp proce- to the camp program uh, given the cumbersome bureaucratic uh, barriers. Um, however, this participant was wondering um, how could we ensure that in-country processes, um, even if they're lengthy can be conducted in like a safer manner. So would it, it be possible to have like in-country resettlement zones? Um, that there's perhaps safety provided by UN White Helmets or UNHCR. So can you tell us a little bit more about how could we strengthen the security of the zones uh, where people await resettlement while their causes are being processed in their home countries?
1: Yeah, I think um, that gets to the core of some of the challenges that these programs have is that they're designed to complement refugee protection or humanitarian protection, but they aren't able to provide uh, the protection in, uh, immediately, right? Um, I remember when we were in working as one of the NGOs in the PTA program, the criteria was that uh, cases had to demonstrate uh, immediate threat and ongoing persecution. So meaning that, that it was now that they need protection, but at the same time, they would have to stay in their countries of origin for over a year while they Get a result so who's responsible for their lives and, and livelihood during that period and that was one of the that we had as an organization in trying to administer the PT, uh, option but i think uh, on a case-by-case basis you can assess uh, what resources it might be available in the country family resources social resources to relocate uh, those people and try to assist them uh, from a different part of the country while they are uh, going through the long process so that kind of makes these it relegates these programs from being a primary protection tool to being a kind of a secondary bet Um, But that becomes very difficult with people because when you raise the expectation or hope that they might be able to go to the United States or Canada, uh, they uh, tend to burn, you know, the bridges around them in their countries of origin that might help them be safer or have more successful uh, reintegration in their countries of origin. So there's a conflict that we noticed when we were administering the program between uh, trying to uh, foster reintegration or protection solutions in countries of origin, while at the same time families are in their own minds emotionally uh, psychologically already leaving because they've applied to these programs. And so the, when they're rejected, for example, when the applications are rejected, uh, the crisis is much worse because they've spent a year or more uh, <laughs> not re- reestablishing uh connection and 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 reintegration in their own countries and kind of thinking that the option would be to leave so those are that we always had that problem that they become uh and i and i think that's that's relegated them to not being um you know when we look at the political persecution uh, you you can't ask somebody who is facing prison or or death uh, (laughs) to wait for a year or so to get a response from the PTA program. So I think those are the limits of them, but I think that the solution should be to involve other countries, uh, that the the processing could be done while people are not in their country of origin. And I think that that, it becomes more like a resettlement mechanism. Um, But I think that that's the pathway to improve these programs.
0: Thank you so much for that. Um, I don't know if our other panelists want to expand, or if I may move on to another question. Andrea, yes, if I
3: could quickly add on to what Noah was saying, I fully agree that there need to be opportunities to go outside of the country. In cases where that just isn't possible at the moment, I do think uh, strengthening the capacity of shelters may be another option, whether they are the current existing shelters or, partnering with trusted uh, community organizations, international organizations to offer new shelter options. Uh, What we learned in our study is that a lot of the the kids who had the option of going to a shelter declined because they didn't consider it safe there either. Another challenge was that many of the shelters were for children. And as you know, with the CAM program, you can be up to 21, so 18 to 21, they don't know where they can go. There aren't a lot of shelters available for them while they're waiting in country. So processing outside of the country is important. Uh, As a backup, having safe, trusted shelters is also uh, an opportunity.
0: Thank you so much for that um, essay. And then, if I may now move on to another question, which is actually quite um, timely. Um, a participant is asking about the kind of appetite that the U.S. government um, might have for scaling these types of in-country processing mechanisms uh, given the conflicts with um, immigration reform and, um, and actually asylum reform. So um, would either of you want to take this question?
1: Go ahead, Susan.
2: I can uh, just start off and then uh, happy to head it over to USA. Uh, So I I think uh, it's important to distinguish between the political conversation on resettlement and the conversation on asylum. So asylum, of course, has been quite difficult and and controversial over the last few years. Um, Within the last couple of years, of course, since we've had um, a new administration come in, I think the conversation on resettlement specifically has shifted quite a bit. And there's a lot more openness to um, resettlement specifically and interest in resettlement potentially as a sort of a a, a pressure release valve. So another way for people to access protection that doesn't involve, you know, taking the the journey through Mexico um, and, you know, providing another opportunity to do that. So I think there is a lot of of interest uh, in investing more in resettlement and we've seen that of course in the fact that the quota the resettlement quota for fiscal year 2022 for Latin America tripled over the preceding year Um, that being said there hasn't been a lot of capacity to actually follow through on the commitments that have already been made Um, so political will is definitely part of the challenge but I think some of the operational difficulties that we've been talking about here as well as broader operational difficulties facing the resettlement program um, particularly since the the COVID-19 pandemic began our, um, you it, at least at the current moment, really what's what's limiting um, resettlement from living into its potential. Um, we've already talked a bit about the backlogs uh, and the lengthy processing times that refugees face, um, but the number of refugees that have actually been resettled this year, despite the administration's um, expanded commitments to resettlement has actually been extremely low and hasn't really um, been much of a change over what was happening over the previous Trump administration. So, I'd say, um, yes, more political will, but in in order for that to actually be fulfilled, and we need to address some of these operational barriers going forward.
3: Yeah, I agree with what Susan said, that there's certainly more political will at this time um, to provide for humanitarian uh, concerns. I would say in response to the question, I'm not sure that there is greater activity around in-country processing. Uh, It's not to say there isn't, I'm just saying I'm not sure of that. What I'm seeing, though, is a greater shift towards use of the discretionary parole status. And that seems to be a trend in the US, whether we're talking about, you know, unaccompanied children through the CAM program or the Afghan evacuees or uh, Ukrainians coming to the southern border. Uh, So I think that is a shift that's happening. That doesn't have to mean in-country processing. It can happen in the US, uh, but there seems to be a reliance increasingly on that.
0: Thank you so much, SA, for that. Um, And in line with what you just mentioned, actually, a participant is wondering uh, what is the expected impact of the DHS memorandum establishing more application of deferred action to deportation? If it is um, expected to be a growth on application to to CAM as a result.
3: Is that a question for me, Andreas? Yes. Could yes. you repeat it one more time?
0: Yes. A participant is wondering whether um, what's the expected impact of the DHS uh, memorandum um, that establishes more application of deferred action to deportation? So whether that would have an impact on the number of applications submitted to CAM.
3: I really couldn't speak to that. I don't know what impact it will have uh, for the applications to CAM. Again, I think it's important to think of CAM as a pilot with a lot of different driving forces that will make it possible or not. There are um, certainly documented cases where people have thought CAM was a viable solution. They started the process but because of the barriers that we saw, they abandoned the um, case processing and found other ways oftentimes coming on their own. Uh, I mean, clearly for those who have been provided deferred action, they're going to have an opportunity to stay longer in the U.S. But um, staying longer in the U.S., in my view, is just the beginning. What about the employment authorization and the benefits and services needed for longer term integration in order to have, you know, safety and security in the U.S.?
0: Thank you. Um, So we have time for uh, one or two more questions. Um, I'm gonna actually turn uh, to Noah, if you can speak of this, but... um, One of our participants is wondering whether, um, as your organization was administering the PTA, if there were conversations about how to expedite the screening process uh, on the ground. So whether we have looked at the feasibility and possibility of having USCIS uh, expanding offices in Central America, um, I know that this this is some sensitive issue for some of the host governments, but um, could you tell us a little bit more about this?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, USCIS does have a presence in El Salvador at least, um, but I don't—they're not involved in the PTA program, as far as I know. Uh, we we when we were administering the program, we made a series of recommendations um, to try and to try and speed up the program, and I think. I've mentioned one of them and it is under being sensitive that there's a series of screenings right so there's a, the first intake is usually done by an NGO right now in El Salvador for example it's IRC and, and then it goes to UNHCR, IOM, DHS and so they have to go through all those processes so streamlining that I think would be uh, one of the ways, and I, I hope that they've made progress on that since we administered the program um, that, that because there's a revictimization uh, element uh, violation of sort of the uh, do no harm principle in humanitarian assistance and someone has to continue to tell the same story. Uh, and so I think that that's one of the ways you could build efficiencies in the system is that you have people who are trained under the same criteria and the, the information that they gather can be sufficient for the, the ongoing process. But the other one is what we've been mentioning here is um, to be able to allow people, I think the idea was that they could go to Costa Rica originally to, at, at some point, but if we could get people out of the country earlier uh, and in, in sort of the processing phase, uh, I think that would be really important. otherwise it's just not that viable of a, a protection option for people who are uh, at risk. I know cases of uh, trans colleagues who kind of apply to PTA <laughs> knowing that their uh, profile at risk and um, and kind of hope it comes through before they have a real problem you know and so it, it, I think that that it just has to become more agile it has to allow for people uh, to escape death when death is at their doorstep not at once the processing goes through um, so i think that those are the two areas either looking at the the filter the filtering between the agencies that are involved and building efficiencies there and giving people options to get out of their country uh, early on in the processing
0: thank you so much Noah. Um, and i believe we have one final question this is more of like a data question and um, for you, Essay, and I guess it's, it's totally fine if we don't have the, the numbers handy, but we can uh, definitely send that info along to participants later on. Uh, the participant is wondering how does the number of unaccompanied children granted asylum in the U.S. compared to the number of children who have been granted parole through the CAMP program? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just because of the
3: the scale, the number of children who come to the US outside of CAM and then subsequently apply for asylum, it is significantly larger um, than the children who receive parole through CAM. One important note though, is that it's not mutually exclusive. Children who applied for CAM got parole status and then came to the US they can either renew their parole after a couple of years typically, or they can begin their asylum application. And if approved, they can have a grant of asylum and become an asylee. So it's not mutually exclusive, but certainly there are a lot more children who get
0: asylum in the US um, than
3: children who have parole via CAM.
0: Thank you so much. Um, so, with that, we have covered most of the questions of all of our participants. I want to now turn to the panelists for a final word if you want to highlight something before we wrap up.
3: I can start with the final thought.
0: Uh, you know, for
3: me, refugee resettlement, the protection systems overall, were in a period of disruption and creativity and learning in order to build the next iteration of what um, the systems will look like moving forward. And I think that's an exciting time. It's a hopeful time. It's good that we're trying these many different pathways and um, that we're going to develop greater solutions to meet the modern needs as Noah and others talked about with climate
2: change. I did jump in. Um, I think what SA said is e- exactly on point, and I think that's a, a really crucial thing to recognize about the resettlement system at the moment. And hopefully, we'll end up with a set of options that um, really works better and, and expands protection opportunities going forward. Uh, I would just, I think, maybe reiterate um, one of the points that we've all mentioned, and that was most brought up again in the Q and A, which is that in order for any of these new opportunities, new pathways, as well as resettlement itself, to really work going forward we need to address some of the operational difficulties that have um, made it a a cumbersome process and that includes both speeding up processing times as well as addressing some of the additional barriers that have now arisen and backlogs that have arisen during the COVID-19 pandemic and expanding opportunities for partner NGOs um, both within the U.S. um, and within uh, the the origin countries to really you know, play a role in identifying and referring people and then assisting them after they arrive in country, whether that's you know, through um, some of the programs that essay mentioned or some of the new uh, private sponsorship programs that are being built up, particularly in the U.S. So it's about um, both addressing the operational difficulties that are preventing programs from living into their potential and also really expanding um, the range of partners that we're working with to make um, both uh, resettlement as well as some of these you know, new pathways like family reunification, private sponsorship, um, a reality.
1: Yeah, I thank you all for your comments, and it's great to be here. I, I think it's important when we look at uh, alternative pathways and things like that to remember national protection as the primary uh, option that is still what, what we would say here in Central America, abandoned by the by the governments of origin, the countries of origin. Um, in El Salvador, there's a law on internal displacement, but they're it is no, sub, no substantive uh, budget for it. The programs uh, essentially don't exist for people. In Honduras, they still haven't approved a law after, I think, almost like seven years of having and debating it. Uh, and so there's not a, a deep commitment by the countries in the region to create national protection options. Um, and I also think that uh, there needs, there's, there's viable options. That's what we're working on. Uh, to help people to find options within the region, uh, to reintegrate, to find durable solutions. And I think those are um, options that always need to be on the table. Also, I think that the U.S. could do a better job, as as Canada as well, in creating humanitarian visas for journalists, for human rights defenders, and for for former prosecutors who face criminalization, harassment, and threats against their lives. I think that um, that's one of the new profiles. Uh, that we see increasingly emerging, and uh, to be honest, I think that there just aren't enough good options to help people who, especially when the Biden administration says that their primary commitments in the region are to combat corruption and to fight democracy, the people who are on the front lines of that I think need to feel the backing of the international community uh, when threats come uh, and, and when they face prison or, or or death. So I think that those are some of the, the options that we always need to keep on the table. Thanks.
0: Thank you so much, um, everyone. So we have come to the end of our webinar. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining. An audio and a recording with, of this webinar will be available on the event website tomorrow. Uh, reporters on the call can contact Michelle Middlestadt at m m i t t e l s t a d t at migrationpolicy.org with any question. And please remember to check out our report um, that is available on MPI's website, Humanitarian Pathways for Central America, Assessing Opportunities for the Future, along with the Spanish uh, version. I would just want to finally conclude by thanking the many um, organizations and experts who provided the time and their insights for the report as well as um, our research assistants, uh, Jared Walkers, uh, Joseph Flores, Daniela Hall, uh, who made the the completion of this report possible, as well as my colleagues at MPI. Um, So with that, have a good um, Tuesday and rest of the week.